0: This morning we're reading from Psalm 14, and this is from the English Standard Version. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." They are corrupt; they do abominable de- abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. "'Together they have become corrupt. "'There is none who does good, not even one. "'Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, "'who eat up my people as they eat bread, "'and do not call upon the Lord? "'There they are in great terror, "'for God is with the generation of the righteous. "'You would shame the plans of the poor, "'but the Lord is his refuge. "'Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion.' When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. let Israel be glad
1: so the title of today 's message I know may come across as a bit antagonistic the, the foolishness of unbelief um, i don 't mean it to be antagonistic this is this is really I believe a safe place to hear bad news and and i i 'm just taking that title from ...from the psalmist's opening remark... ...from the first line of the psalm... Uh, ...where he says... ...the fool says in his heart... ...there is no God. And I can, I can imagine in our culture... Uh, ...the environment in which we live... ...the news uh, that we take in... ...the things we see and watch and hear... ...and how we've been taught... ...I can see how a line like that... ...the fool says in his heart... ...there is no God... ...can, can seem offensive... After all, we all know atheists and agnostics and people of other religions who, um, who are decent, law-abiding people, right? Maybe you yourself don't consider to be a Christian, but you feel you're a decent, law-abiding person. Um, and so how could anybody that we would consider to be that be called by the psalmist here a fool? We can only really make sense of that. We can only make sense of this claim that the psalmist makes in the very beginning of his prayer if we consider the Bible's understanding of sin. Then it'll make more sense. If we can consider how extensive sin's impact is upon our society, upon culture, how extensive the impact of sin has been in human history, and for every person, every person Each one of us, me, even you. And as we discover how sin operates in the human heart, and as we discover the progression of sin in the human heart, then I think we will, I think you will, if you're honest with yourself. And if you look at all the facts, objectively and reasonably, you will see that the psalmist's opening line is painfully But needfully true. And I also hope you're going to see today. In Psalm 14. That yes our corruption. Is great. But God's salvation is greater. And as we unpack that. I want to talk about the nature of sin. And I want to talk about the impact of sin. And then I want to talk about deliverance from it. Okay so. So the nature of sin. What it's really like, what it is, and, and, and then the impact of it, how it affects us. And then finally, how we're delivered from it. So the nature of sin, or as David says, it might be David, um, as the psalmist says in Psalm 14, uh, corruption. He uses the word corrupt more than once. Our corruption, our depravity, as some theologians have called it throughout centuries, our sin. Okay, just we're, I'm going to call it sin today. The nature of our sin is wide and it's deep. When I was a kid in vacation Bible school or Sunday school, we had this song. It was deep and wide. There was a fountain flowing deep and wide. It was about how wonderful God's love is. It's so deep. It's so wide. Well, in a sense, Psalm 14 says human sin is also deep and wide. And here's how so. Sin is wide in the sense that it is everywhere. It's everywhere. As Steve said earlier with the children, with the, the illustration of water, it's all around us. It's everywhere. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. It's everywhere. If you watch the news tonight or... You read the Baltimore Sun or you pay attention to the D.C. news cycle. What are you going to find out? You're going to find out that people are being murdered, uh, that crime is taking place every day, and that there is human conflict. But if you fly to Los Angeles or to Chicago or to Miami or to London and you read their newspapers or their news feeds, you're going to find that uh, different people, different environment, you're going to get the same news. People are killing one another. People are at odds with one another. There's conflict. There's crime. There's deception. There's grief. There's sadness. You're going to see it everywhere. And actually, in verse 4, you get this word evildoers, right? Uh, President Bush, number 2, didn't invent the word evildoers, although he liked to use it a lot after the big terror attacks. You see it here in the Bible. In its most pure sense, though, okay, not no political jargon here. This is evil doing in its most pure sense. And, and he says here in verse 4 that it exists everywhere. And the concept here is that there is no culture, there is no race or ethnicity, there's, there's no environment, there's no political nation, there's no community, there's no home in, in which human nature has not in some sense been um, allowed to be pure. Right? There's, there's no sense in which humanity remains uncorrupted anywhere. Now, you may be saying, well, is that really fair? Is it really fair to say no one does good, not even one? Is that really fair? Well, the Psalm's not only saying that sin is wide, it's also saying that sin is deep. Now, here's what, he, here's what I mean by sin is deep. It has not only spread everywhere, but it's infiltrated and permeated the human experience. It's not just that you can find sin taking place anywhere in the world, but wherever you are in the world, you will see that it has gone deep. It permeates even every individual. And you may be saying, well, I I don't I don't see Psalm 14 saying that. Okay, but let's let the Bible interpret itself. The Apostle Paul Probably the best theologian, greatest theologian who ever lived. The Apostle Paul spends a lot of time interpreting Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. I'll put it up there for you just a little bit. Paul is talking to Christians living in Rome, but he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. Predominantly, probably a majority of them were Gentiles at that time in the, in the Roman church. But he's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles as a Jewish man. Who is a Christian? And this is what he says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? He means than anybody else in the world. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, we read that passage earlier from Romans chapter 3. We've concluded that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And now he quotes Psalm 14 as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul applies Psalm 14 to all of humanity. But he goes further. He starts quoting other Psalms and other prophets. He continues by saying, Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. That means they talk like snakes. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And Paul concludes by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul's description of all of us, of all humanity. And what you'll see in Paul's words there, as he quotes all these different Psalms, especially Psalm 14, is that humanity is corrupt in three ways. If you look closely at the passage right there in Romans 3, we're corrupt in our knowledge, we're corrupt in our communication, and we're corrupt in our actions. We're corrupt in our ability to understand ourselves and the world around us, in our intellect, we're corrupt in our communication, in our speech, in how we relate to one another and talk to one another. And we're corrupt in our behavior. We're corrupt in what we do. And actually, the Westminster Divines, Westminster, England, uh, the Westminster Divines in the, in the 1640s, they summed Romans chapter 3 up by saying in, in, in one of their, in their shorter catechisms, uh, they would ask questions and teach adults and children um, about theology. And one of the questions uh, was basically, and I, didn't, I don't remember how to put the question exactly, it was something like, how, how sinful are people, really? And this was the answer. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in, and here's where they're really focusing in on Romans 3, breaks them in thought, word, and deed translation sin has completely infiltrated the very the very heart of our being so that there's nothing our sexuality and gender our politics our friendships how we view work and play and how we worship there there's there's no part of the human experience that has not in some way been tainted by sin and that goes for every single individual Actually, there, there's a very simplified version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, that, that some of my older kids learned when they were little. It's the Kids Quest Catechism Club. And they boil it down simply for 20th century and 21st century children. And, and what the, the, the question I remember hearing my wife ask my, my children over and over and over again is, how sinful are you? That, that was one of the questions. And the answer was, I am... Let me quote it exactly... There's one of my children who a decade later remembers, yeah, the answer was, I am corrupt in every part of my being. There is something very assuring as a parent when you hear your child say, I am corrupt in every part of my being. And you say, you, bet you, you better believe you are. Say it again, say it again. Don't ever forget it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Somebody, somebody named Michael Horton said, made a good point he said now now does the doctrine of original sin which is by the way what we're talking about does original sin the idea that we inherit this sinful corruption from our first parents adam adam and eve does 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 that mean that we're always thinking and saying and doing evil wicked things all the time that that we just should be discarded and thrown in the trash and horton says no no what what it what what the doctrine of original sin and what Paul is saying here and what Psalm 14 is saying is that no part of us can save the rest of us. No one individual can save the rest of us and no part of you can save the rest of you. We are all corrupt in every way. There's no island of purity. Okay. There's no island of purity in your life. There's no island of purity in humanity. And so that's the nature of sin. And Paul's interpretation of Psalm 14 exposes what? That we're all morally suspect. That that we're all in a sense fools apart from the presence of God, the light of God, the wisdom of God in our lives. Apart from him, morally speaking... We're fools. Let me unpack that a bit more. Because I, I want to talk to you not only about the nature of sin. I said also I want to talk to you about the effect of it. Right? The, the, the impact of, of this corruption on us. Quite simply, sin reduces your humanity. I hope you will remember that. Sin reduces your humanity. Look at verse 4. Have they known knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? This is the psalmist just talking out loud, wondering. He sees sees how sinfulness in the world has caused injustice and oppression, especially of his own countrymen, of his own people. Maybe this is David the king, and, and he sees how the world is oppressing his own people. Maybe he's being oppressed. And so he cries out, have they no knowledge? All evildoers who eat my people as they eat bread. The imagery here is of beasts devouring prey. Look at it. You see it? The image you have here is, is of a predator devouring another animal. Actually, you know how classic cartoons humanize animals? Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, he's a bunny, but he looks and acts like a human being, right? All all the, the Lion King, right? All the classic cartoons, all the classic, everything that kids love to sing the songs and all of it. What do you have? You have animals as characters who have been humanized so that we can better relate to them. Well, the Psalmist is doing the opposite here. He is animalizing humans in this picture. He's describing evildoers, he's describing uh, the effects of sin as having an animal-like impact upon human beings. Why would he do that? Why such language? Why, why, why would he go there? Well, let's finally look at the word fool, because that's going to help us understand why Paul's talking. Paul. That'll help us understand why the psalmist is talking this way. Now, in the original Hebrew language for Psalm 14, the word fool, and you can find it throughout the Old Testament, the word fool doesn't mean somebody who's not intelligent. We're not talking about academic brains here. The fool is not somebody who is, on the other hand, gullible and easily misled. There are Hebrew words for that also. And that's not what he's talking about. The fool is not somebody who's naive. It's not somebody Who's not intelligent academically. The fool is somebody who is lacking morally. The fool is somebody who, as one scholar says, displays an aggressive perversity. In In Genesis chapter 34, when Dinah is raped, the word to describe that disgraceful thing is the same word for fool here. It's the same word, family. It was seen as a foolishness. Actually, you may, you may know in 1 Samuel 25, when David comes into contact with Nabal. Well, the Hebrew Nabal means fool. And so literally, and his wife Abigail says, his name's, his name's Nabal and he is a Nabal. Uh, and, and, and Nabal acted foolishly in his rashness, in his unwillingness to concede. Actually, Job's friends are called by God foolish, same word, for misrepresenting God in their conversations with Job. And actually, throughout the prophets and even in the Psalms, entire nations, political nations, uh, ethnic groups, individuals, even Israel as a nation, are described as foolish, same word, for, for not seeking God. Our brother Ed mentioned before, do we seek God? And entire nations are called foolish for not knowing or seeking God. And one scholar says this, the fool is fixed in the correctness of his own opinion, which flies in the face of the established moral order. And that is what the Old Testament means by foolishness. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, sums it up very well. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now that's the Hebrew understanding of what it means to be a fool. But there's also the Greek understanding of being a fool. Because the Old Testament had a Greek translation, which most of the people who wrote the New Testament were more familiar with. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used here for fool, it meant fool. Without reason. Literally, that's what it meant. Without reason, without capacity for rational thinking, like an animal. You can look it up in the dictionary. That's kind of what the definition says. Actually, John Calvin summed it up this way. There is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. So... (laughs) Am I trying to be insulting and saying, well, if you're not a Christian, if if you don't believe in a personal God, if you do not follow the God of the Bible, you're just an animal? No, please, please understand. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I believe every human being is created in the image of God. And so you bear the mark of your creator. And that is a glorious thing. But what I am saying is apart from the God of the Bible, you dehumanize yourself. In a sense, you become less human, which is what the biblical authors again and again show us. To be human is to be like God. That's what separates us from all the other species on the planet is that above everybody else, we have the capacity for rational thought. The reason there's no such thing as a real planet of the apes. right? The reason that's just a movie and just a show is because We're the human beings are the only ones who have the capacity for rational thought. Why is that? The Bible makes it clear. Read Genesis chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. That is biblical anthropology 101 and uh, like 201 or something. But the idea here is, is this. The further you walk away from God, the less human you become. The further you walk away from God, the less you are what God created you to be. To be like him, like none of the other animals, like none of the other species, to alone be like the creator in this world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he put it this way. Although they knew God, now he's describing all of us, all of humanity, from Adam and Eve forward. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You very much do become what you worship. And if you do not worship the creator, you become less like him and you become more like a creature a creature you were not intended to be like. And Paul went on in Romans Romans 1 in in verse 28 to say, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to to a debased mind. See how the language keeps coming back to our capacity for rational thinking, unlike the animals? God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And finally, as you think and live and speak, apart from the light of God's word, apart from the light of his presence in your life, everything you think, everything you desire, everything you say, and your behavior itself becomes more and more godless. Therefore, in light of all this, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, this is a hard thing to hear, but it's a necessary thing to hear. Listen, I want to share with you two illustrations that C.S. Lewis gives us from his Narnia series. Two illustrations of fools with very different outcomes. There's a fool who resisted, and there's a fool who repented. Right? The pic- a, a great picture of a fool who resists God and will not change um, is, is Prince Rabadash. Now this is this is in the horse and his boy. So, I don't know if some of you ever read the Narnia books. And if you have it. I don't want to give it all away. But there, there's, this, there's Prince Rabadash. In the book the horse and his boy. And, and Rabadash. He's a young prince. And he's ruthless. He's selfish. He's prideful. He's crass. He's lustful. He's bloodthirsty. He's just a cruel young man. He cannot be reasoned with. And he he meets Aslan the lion and he refuses to listen to Aslan and Aslan is patient and gentle, but he just refuses and he curses Aslan. And, and he says, uh, he basically says, Aslan, you're a demon. You're a demon. You're wicked. You're bad. You're bad. And he will not listen despite Aslan's gentle warnings. And finally, what happens to Rabadash is Aslan turns him into a donkey. And in the middle of his tirade, as he's speaking this human language, cursing Aslan and and, and going on and on and on like a ruthless dictator, uh, his speech transforms before his very eyes and he starts braying like a donkey as he turns into a beast. But there's another illustration in, in the Narnia series about a fool, but this fool repents. And what I mean by repent is to change your mind in such a way that you live, that you live differently. Uh, The fool who repents is Eustace Scrub. Unfortunate name, but oh well. Eustace is this selfish, spoiled, um, disrespectful, annoying kid, right? Just the pits. This kid is the pits. Um, and, And at the height of his selfishness, and I'll leave all the details out, but at the height of his selfishness, he discovers that he has become a dragon. And he discovers it because he's, he's in front of a pool of water. And he looks down at the reflection and he sees himself for what <laughs> he's truly been all along on the inside. And now it's kind of grown out of him externally. He sees himself for a monster. He sees himself for the monster that he's always been. But, but as he looks at himself, as he gets the clarity for who he's truly been, what he's truly been, he develops, he's, he has sorrow. He has a change of mind. And, and he basically pleads with Aslan to change him. Because only Aslan can change him. He tries to scrape off the scales, the dragon scales, and they keep growing back. And Aslan says to him, I have to take this off of you. I have to remove this dragon skin, this beastly thing that you've encapsulated yourself in your entire life. I have to remove it, and only I can, and only I can do it perfectly. And and Eustace went back to tell his friends, well, (laughs) they became his friends after this. He said, you know, it was the most painful thing to have Aslan rip that dragon skin off of me. It was the most painful and yet the most delightful thing I had ever experienced. See, if we are willing to look at our sin and call it what it is, rebellion against our creator, an unwillingness to know him, not wanting to be affiliated with him, just flipping him off and walking in the other direction. If we're finally willing to say, yes, by nature, that's who I am and that's what I've done and and that's how I think until we're willing to say that, we're not going to ask him to heal us. Eustace had to see a reflection of who he truly was before he was pleading with Aslan to, in love and in power, rip it off of him. And no longer clothe him in his dragon skins, but in, my, in, in Paul's terminology in Romans, clothe him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I did talk about deliverance, right? There's, there's not just the bad news about sin, there's good news too. There's a deliverance from all of this corruption. If you admit the greatness of your sin, you can embrace the greatness of God's salvation. And this is what David, this is what what Psalm 14 prays for. Look at verse 7. Oh, that's it. Now, this is interesting. He is mourning the fact this is a lament he's singing the blues he's mourning the fact that everybody's doing bad things that every time he turns on the news goes through his twitter feed somebody's always getting in trouble for doing something corrupt he's sick of it and people are oppressing his people wickedness everywhere all the time coming from everybody now what's his response this is interesting he doesn't give in to despair he doesn't become a cynic he doesn't become a skeptic he doesn't kill himself. He doesn't, he, doesn't, um, uh, he doesn't give himself to addictive substances or behaviors of thinking. He doesn't throw his hands up and give up. Neither does he take the law into his own hands and become vengeful. He doesn't give in to a vengeful spirit where he becomes a condemning person. What does he do? He throws himself. He throws himself at the mercy of Israel's God. And he longs. He longs that God would come and make things right. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, like Jerusalem, the Temple Mountain. Okay. oh, that salvation would come when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. He was asking for relief for him and his people, and he didn't see that God would answer that prayer in in such a in such a bigger way. He couldn't fathom how God would answer that prayer in the end. He does two things here. He cries for help and he puts his hope in God's salvation. And you can do the same in your prayer life. When you look at the world... And and how how bad things have gotten. And when you look at yourself and you're so discouraged or even ashamed of what you're thinking about. And you're ashamed of what you've said. And what you do. You can do do what we see in verse 7. Cry for help right now. I need help right now. And put your hope in the future of what God is going to do. He will cleanse you completely and fully. He will bring justice to those who are oppressed even if it's you. So this prayer, verse 7, is answered beyond, infinitely beyond the nature of the request to just bless Israel at that moment. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is trying to encourage the reader that Jesus is so much greater, so much greater than all the systems And all the people and the leaders and the regulations of the Old Testament, that he fulfills it all, that he completes it all, that he he embodies it all. And he said, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that sums up Boldly I Approach, which we sang just earlier. So Jesus, I hope you see this, that that as a human being, he was tested, tempted, same word, in every way, just like we are, just like you've been. And yet he was without sin. That's really important. Because unlike all other religions, unlike any mythology that you can think of, Jesus is not a God who takes on our own personifications. You know? Jesus is not a God who is simply the embodiment of all that humanity is. No, he is a God who shows us everything that humanity should have been and will be someday. And that is why we can trust him because he knows our experience. He sympathizes with our experience. And yet he can represent you in a pure way because he is pure and he is perfect. And and this is why Christianity insists on salvation through nobody else but Jesus. This is why Christianity and the Bible say there's no other way to have reconciliation with God. There's no other way to be the true you, the person God intended you to be, apart from Jesus because just like us, yes, in our humanity, but nothing like us in our corruption. Because there is no part of Him that has been corrupted. That's why we sing to Him. That's why Christians trust in Jesus and follow Him, because we know, we know that we're corrupt in and of ourselves. John Newton was a slave trader. Who then became a Christian. Jesus changed his life. And and to his dying day. He remembered this. He said. I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner. And that Christ is a great savior. And so he, he wrote that song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I now am found. Was blind. But now I see. And he sings about About the progress that that Jesus accomplishes transforming us from corrupted people who are not truly living as human beings transformed to the children, the sons and daughters of God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that cannot be taken off of you because he puts it on you. And when Jesus puts it on you, nobody can rip that off. Yeah, your corruption Is a big deal to God. It is such a big deal to God. That he was willing to send his son. To die for your corruption. A perfect sacrifice. And so yes. Our corruption is great. But Jesus' salvation is even greater. And I hope you will walk away from this. Remembering that. Admit the greatness of your sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just stopped making excuses? And said wow. yeah, I really am that bad. Yeah, I, I'm not going to make excuses anymore. That 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 wasn't a mistake. I meant to say that. I meant to do that. Um, I, I enjoy thinking that way. Um, just have you, just admit it, and you can. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in that because Jesus covered it on the cross. So admit it finally. Admit it completely and embrace the salvation. That this God of the Bible offers. Admit the greatness of your sin. But admit the greatness of God's salvation. And that is a meditation. On Psalm 14. Let's pray. We praise the one father. We praise the one. That was sacrificed. For all of our sin. And we praise you. That the Lord Jesus. On the cross. Drew men and women all of us to himself and was punished in our place. I pray that you, would, that you would give us this perspective that we cannot have on our own but receive as a gift of grace, this perspective about the true nature of our corruption and the true glory and beauty of forgiveness in Christ, of newness in Christ. As you have made us new creations, Father, help us grow up in our new skin. And for anyone here, Father, who has not yet trusted Christ, they they may be even thinking now, I am I am stuck in my original corruption or or they are offended and indignant that anyone would even suggest that they are corrupt in any way. Father, I pray for your kind mercy upon them to show them Jesus Christ even as you showed him to me. Amen.